To make fish soup, boil the water first. Add fish, let it boil again. Cook it some more, around five more minutes if it's the fish head. Otherwise, just two more minutes. Turn off the heat, then let it sit for five minutes before you serve. That's how you get the best fish. Zhao Manzu's fish soup is legendary amongst those who visit her family's grouper fish farm in southern Taiwan. She makes litters of it to sell. Fish fillet, fish balls, fish soup, frozen packages of grouper fish shipped to households and restaurants across Taiwan, Canada, the U.S., Singapore, and Hong Kong. Grouper is loved by Taiwanese. Its texture and size makes it a favorite at banquets, and it's one of Taiwan's most valuable seafood exports. It's a hit too over in China. In 2021, 91% of grouper exports were sent to China, but that came to an abrupt end when China put a ban on Taiwanese groupers. Today on economic coercion, how China uses trade to influence Taiwan, and how Taiwan pushes back. How Taiwan's international partners help alleviate pressure, and how negotiators see the role of trade pacts with partnering nations. This is Dispatch from Taiwan, a podcast series where we take a deep dive into debates that influence Taiwan's policies that can shape the region. My name is Emily Waiwu, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode four. Along the western coast of southern Taiwan, between the ancient capital of Tainan and the port city of Kaohsiung, once the third largest port in the world, is a coastline that stretches 80 kilometers or 50 miles. Here are patches of wetlands and fish farms. It's a world away from the steel and chrome towers of Taipei City. On Yongda Road in Yong'an District, rows after rows of fish farms are the signs of productivity. We are at the estate of Mr. Su and his wife, Mrs. Zhao, who gave us that recipe at the beginning of the episode. Mr. Su's father had started this fish farm in 1940. Today, grouper fish fill up 25 ponds here. Adult fish can weigh up to 30 kilograms or 66 pounds. They need up to four to five years to grow. But in the winter of 2016, extreme weather destroyed much of the agricultural products throughout Taiwan. An estimated 108.6 million US dollars was lost in the fish industry alone. This is a hard industry. Fish farmers depend on the weather for their fish to survive. So even if it's fair weather all year, then every farm will have an abundant harvest. This pushes down everyone's price. So you hoped in secret there's a natural disaster somewhere else. It's a vicious competition. That's Mr. Su's daughter, Mia. Growing up watching her parents and grandparents maintain fish farms, Mia thought this was a risky business. But she came back in the end. In 2016, Mia left her hospitality job in Hong Kong, and her husband Mac 
left his engineering job at the semiconductor manufacturer, TSMC. They moved back and they became third generation fish farmers. They had returned in time. Six years later, in 2022, Beijing banned grouper fish from Taiwan. It said it found illegal chemicals in shipment samples, so it banned the fish from Taiwan altogether. At that point, 91% of grouper exports, worth more than 50 million US dollars, were being sent to China. Taiwan is home to more than a thousand grouper farms. It has an output of nearly 20,000 metric tons a year. The ban was meant to be devastating for Taiwan's grouper industry, and it was seen as a move by China to create pressure on Taiwanese businesses. But the Su family wasn't affected. Here's Mia's husband, Mac, who said they had begun to look beyond the Chinese market starting in 2016. By 2022, only about 20 or 30 percent of our output was going to China, so the ban affected us just little. There was also a lot of patriotic orders, so there were still a lot of products that were out of stock. Yeah, we're still trying to fill the supply. Did you catch that phrase? Patriotic orders. This refers to the increase of purchases by the Taiwanese public when an industry is suddenly banned by China. Here's another example. A year before the grouper ban, China put a ban on one of Taiwan's most important agricultural exports, pineapples. 97% of that export was supposed to go to China. This created a shock in the industry, naturally. But in the end, the pushback was stronger. A combination of patriotic orders from within Taiwan and record purchases by Taiwan's economic partners filled the gap. In just four days, Taiwanese bought everything that was meant for China for the entire year. Japan, Singapore, and Australia all put in additional orders of pineapples from Taiwan. There have been other bans. Bans on squid, tuna, mahi-mahi, bans on Taiwan's most recognizable beverage brands, Taiwan beer, and Qingmen Gaoliang, bans on fruits, from pineapples to wax apples, and honey, snacks, and pastries. The list goes on. Beijing gives a lot of reasons for the bans. Pests and chemicals were supposedly found on different fruits. Companies that made processed foods were accused of providing incomplete import documentation. Some were even asked for information tantamount to revealing trade secrets. The bans carried the hallmarks of economic coercion. I'm Huixin Yan. I work uh, with uh, Taiwan WTO and RTA Center in Zhonghua Institution for Economic Research. Dr. Yan is Senior Deputy Executive Director of the Center at the Policy Think Tank. Her office focuses on trade policy, supply chain, and economic issues. Economically, I would say uh, China uses all kinds of, um, I mean, to pressure Taiwan, particularly for Taiwanese businessmen, attempting to use business leaders to influence Taiwan uh, society and to pressure on uh, our government to adopt more appeasement-based cross-trade policy. 
uh, of course, particularly there are some economic restrictions in trade investment and also travel. Frequently used by、uh, PRC against Taiwan, and among this, I mean the most common、uh, practice PRC uses is buying products from Taiwan based on food safety issues. Dr. Yan says China's moves come from a playbook other countries have also seen before. All economic coercion that、uh, China use actually they use the same tools against Australia, Philippines. Uh, Lithuania, and of course, I would say Taiwan certainly will be the one that we have better experience that confronted with this kind of、uh, economic coercions. So, but because China they use this kind of economic coercion more and more, the international community also、uh, kind of、uh, thinking that we we need to make a collective response. So I think、uh, G7 countries they are thinking of a collective mechanism to respond this kind of、uh, coercion. China's use of economic coercion to achieve political goals is well documented. In a 2023 report before the U.S. Congress, experts said China has been known to both offer and withdraw access to its market. It has either threatened to or imposed actual trade restrictions. It has suspended contracts. It has even used sanctions against specific officials, academics, and institutions to advance economic goals. It even said, "Quote: China has demonstrated a willingness to break global trade rules and norms." Trade under Taiwan and China is mostly governed by a deal known as ECFA, Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement. This was signed in 2010 at a high-profile event in Chongqing, China. The administration of Taiwan's then president Ma Ying-jeou considered this a major win, as the deal was meant to balance trade and reduce tariffs. Taiwan had more items included than China did. The early harvest list for tariff-free leaves covered 557 items from Taiwan and 267 from China. But scholars argue that ECFA only heightened the differences between the two. China viewed it as a tool to control Taiwan, while Taiwan viewed it as further proof of its autonomy. And critics warned this would create an over-reliance on the Chinese market. Thus, putting Taiwan in a vulnerable position. In 2016, Ma's political party, the Nationalist Party (KMT), lost the presidential elections to the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. Since then, China has refused to engage with the DPP administration, resulting in a period of economic instability between Taiwan and China. Today, there is an ad hoc feeling to China's economic sanctions. It's turned guessing which Taiwanese industry could be China's next target into a game of whack-a-mole, and the Taiwanese government has had to find alternative markets for different products, both at home and abroad, and that's had an impact on Taiwan's exports to China. Last year, in 2023. While Taiwan's largest buyer remains China and Hong Kong, accounting for 35.2% of total exports, 
This is a decline from the previous year of 38.8% in 2022. Then, just before the January elections, China said it would suspend tariff reliefs on a range of Taiwanese petrochemical products. This was supposed to have been protected under ECFA. So what if China was to put pressure on Taiwan by suspending ECFA altogether? That's something China has threatened to do. Dr. Yen doesn't think it will happen for one simple reason. It's one way for Beijing to keep Taiwan under its thumb. I wouldn't say China will suspend or just terminate the ECFA as a whole, because that is the only way to demonstrate that China still wants to make harmonization with Taiwan. That is the only tool. He couldn't stop or terminate this kind of tool. He need to keep it there and that he can use it or ma manipulate that whenever he wants. Particularly for his perspective, because we, we are a democratic system, we have election every two, every four years. So ECFA is the best way to keep manipulating Taiwan society and to make our business leaders who have impact on our government policy. So if Taiwan cannot reliably do business with China, what options does it have? My name is Benjamin Xi. Uh, I'm an assistant trade representative within the Office of Trade Negotiation. Uh, we always call it OTN. Uh, it's a task force under the executive yuan in Taiwan. My main portfolio is our trade relationship with the United States. The Office of Trade Negotiation was set up to manage trade deals with potential partners other than China. The, the directions that we diversify our trade is, I would talk about um, the three parts. The first part is uh, New South Bond policy. And then the second part is we, our application to uh, CPTPP. And then the third part is uh, bilateral trade deals. The New Southbound Policy, NSP. Let's turn our globe to the region to the south of Taiwan. The NSP was initiated in 2016 to cultivate relationships with Southeast Asia, South Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. It's meant to create mutually beneficial exchanges in trade, talent, and resources. It's to help Taiwan diversify its markets. The NSP is Taiwan's second attempt to pivot away from China by looking to Southeast Asia. Its first attempt came in the early 1990s and was packaged as a series of go-south policies. But the policy failed in the end because businesses then were reluctant to leave China. This time, things are different. The outcome is we can already see our export to this new Sunspawn policy countries already increased. In year 2021, it's increased by 18.9%. And then uh, year 2022 is 19.4%. And then last year is already over 20, increased by 20.8%. So the trade is continued to increase. Taiwan's view on building partnerships is holistic and doesn't just offer its trading partners economic benefits. Xu says, 
Taiwan works with them in areas like agriculture, medicine, and scholarly exchanges, and even provides humanitarian assistance, like free surgeries, building shelters. So these uh, humanitarian assistance also help build up Taiwan's positive image in those uh, New Southbound policy countries. All these efforts, Xu says, have resulted in a jump in two-way investments. In six years, his office saw an increase of 121.4% worth of Taiwanese investment in NSP countries. The, the number is uh, 5.27 billion US dollars. And then from NSP countries to Taiwan is increased by eight folds because the, the base is smaller. Uh, so right now the, the number is about 2.07 billion. Let's move to a different part of the world. Taiwan is trying to join the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership which has its roots in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. That group, led by the U.S., was partly set up to counter China's economic dominance. But the U.S., under then-President Donald Trump, pulled out of the TPP, leading to the creation of the CPTPP. The current grouping includes Australia, Brunei, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. Joining CPTPP is also one of our important policy to diversify uh, export markets. Uh, although CPTPP members have not decided uh, how to deal with the new applications and are still collecting information regarding new applicants, we did make some progress in our application. So first, we express our strong willingness to meet the agreement's high standards. That's already well known among the CPTPP members. And then second, we continue to engage with individual CPTPP members and already have some positive results. Uh, for example, we signed an investment deal with Canada and uh, signed an overarching arrangement on trade partnership with the UK. And then third is we develop our uh, engagement with CPTPP members through um, other means. That brings us to the evolving relationships with individual trading partners like the United States, Canada, and the UK. In June 2023, the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade was signed. The negotiations held under this initiative are very comprehensive and involve many different uh, government agencies. Benjamin Xi said this was a milestone in Taiwan-U.S. bilateral economic and trade relations. It also shows that Taiwan has taken a critical step to work to negotiate trade agreements with Taiwan's major trading partners. The first agreement covers five important uh, trade uh, topics, including trade facilitation, good regulatory practice, service domestic regulations, anti-corruption, and uh, uh, small and medium uh, enterprises, or we call SMB. And the subsequent negotiations of seven other topics will cover all the major emerging uh, trade issues that are mostly discussed in the world. Taiwan hopes this will pave the way for more down the road. 
the first agreement will help to build a solid uh, legal foundation uh, for our bilateral economic engagement with the United States. So in the future, we hope that Taiwan and the United States can gradually expand the contents of the agreement based on the consensus and the mutual benefits and have the potential to develop into a more comprehensive free trade agreement or FTA. Similar deals were also concluded with Canada and with the UK, all in 2023 before Taiwan's 2024 elections. Official moves to encourage industries to decouple from China is not surprising for Dr. Yen, whose research institution has been calling on Taiwanese businesses to do just that. China is not a reliable market anymore. And of course, uh, considering their economic performance, because of its bad uh, economic performance, China has to pursue more protectionism measures for their domestic industry. We already uh, urge our industry to be aware of this. But I think before the U.S.-China rivalry, because Taiwan, Taiwan is well-renowned for our professional country manufacturing business model. Dr. Yan points to Taiwan's manufacturing industry and its high number of factories that used to be in China. Much of it had long been moving out of China. Ten years ago, even, even before the China-U.S. rivalry, we considered the increasing competition in China and also there, there is a rise of uh, Chinese uh, domestic markets. That generates some pressures for Taiwanese company. So uh, we began to approach China Plus One 10 years ago. We can see there is a decreasing trend for Taiwan's investment in China, even before the China-US rivalry or even the COVID-19 breakout. So I think our industry have uh, their awareness based on their business decisions and also their discussion with their outsourcing company. They have already pursued uh, China plus one or one plus China strategy. China plus one is a term said to have been coined in 2013. It's when a business pivots from China and looks at working with other markets instead like India and Vietnam. In a way, this is what the grouper farmer, Mr. Su and his family have done on their own. Let's head back to Southern Taiwan. Su's grouper farm had begun to diversify their exports in 2016. Third generation grouper farmer, Mac said, the point wasn't to not sell to China, the point was to sell to everyone. Take groupers. I can't say if Taiwan can survive without the Chinese market or whether or not it will be affected. It's a weird answer. The thing is, this fish is for anybody who loves it, no matter where they are. We export to Canada. We export to the US, to Singapore. And we are preparing to export to Japan. China is also part of our market. People within Taiwan also love our fish. Nearly anyone can enjoy our fish, no matter where you are. By the end of 2022, 
Taiwanese grouper exports to the rest of the world had increased, including to the US, Japan, Thailand, Korea, Vietnam, Canada, Singapore, and Malaysia. So would Mac be upset if he lost the China market altogether? Yeah, but of course, if we lose our China market, indeed, Chinese consumers do love this fish, so surely this would have some impact. But at the end of the day, I think the market will have to return to its free mechanism. If you continue to interfere and intervene, I don't think most people will be happy about that. Geopolitics, like weather, is something he cannot control, he said. But he hopes for increased dialogue and exchange between Taiwan and China. And he looks forward to having the Chinese market open to him again. In December 2023, three weeks before the presidential elections in Taiwan, Beijing lifted the grouper ban. But at the end of the day, Mac believes that if you make quality products, then you will stand out in the market. People will come to you. I need your products so I can survive, so I can defeat my competition. It's like TSMC. Everyone in the world knows they're the best at manufacturing chips. So the same goes for grouper. On the day of our visit, the fish farm had just received close to 100 tourists. Max says thousands of tourists arrive each year from all corners of Taiwan. They have come to see the home of the famous Taiwanese groupers, how they're raised and harvested, the quality control. Mia, who grew up here, says this is good customer service for the public to meet in person those responsible for their food. The Sioux family got so good at selling fish that they founded a co-op. They've gathered other fish farmers to market everyone's products together and directly to consumers and restaurants. They also run ecological tourism to promote the industry. It's empowering the fish farmers with a sense of ownership and pride for their community. They've even won a national award. In the same way, Taiwan could share its experience with countries and provide plans on how to pivot away from the risk of trade with China. Benjamin Xu from the Trade Office cites the example of Lithuania, which had also caught the brunt of China's ire. Back in 2021, when Taiwan opened its new diplomatic mission in Vilnius, Lithuania agreed for the office to be named the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania. Because of this, China imposed trade restrictions against Lithuania, which was exporting 210 million US dollars worth of products to China annually. This caused the European Union to take legal action against Beijing. It said, quote, China has applied discriminatory and coercive measures against exports from Lithuania and against exports of EU products containing Lithuanian content. Taiwan also stepped up to help by buying Lithuanian alcohol and chocolate and creating new investments. I think there, there was some products that uh, they, on their shipping to to China and then got rejected. We did manage to find some Taiwanese buyers and then import them. So that's for the market. 
We also help with the investments. I would like to say that we don't really compete dollar for dollar saying, okay, you lost how much dollars uh, market and we can compensate for that. We, we don't do that. We just try to look at the, the relationship. How can we uh, benefit economically for each other? And then we can help with that. We set up a, a fund to help our companies to invest in Lithuania. They are good at laser technology, which can be used in semiconductor industries. So we help with matchmaking our companies with their companies to cooperate on this side. So that, that to create a win-win situation. I think those opportunities is what we're trying to uh, make our trading partner understand that we want to work with you and we want to work with you when you are economic coerced. Please don't just give us up just because of this. That's what we do. China has and continues to launch repeated efforts to strong-arm Taiwan's businesses. But businesses appear to be less willing to be cowed. And they seem intent on pushing back, at least for now. The Economist has also reported on the decline of Taiwanese investment in China. While 80% of Taiwan's investment went into China in 2010, it dropped to just 11% last year in 2023. The same goes for foreign companies based in Taiwan. In its newest business climate survey for 2024, the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan said confidence among its members here is high. 92% of respondents plan to maintain or increase their investment in Taiwan. And 22% of all respondents had relocated their business out of China in the past five years, with a majority moving to Taiwan or Taiwan plus other markets. Taiwan watchers say the island's ability to successfully resist economic coercion will come down to strategies that will help de-link Taiwan's economy from China's. This includes signing more bilateral trade agreements with like-minded countries, strengthening its position within the global supply chain, and providing meaningful employment at home, which will help its citizens from seeking jobs in China. Only then might it be possible for Taiwan to fend off attempts from China to make it a part of the People's Republic of China. You've been listening to Dispatch from Taiwan from the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. and Ghost Island Media in Taipei. Thank you to all the guests who took their time to speak to us. We urge you to follow their work and ours on all of our websites and social media. Views in the podcast do not reflect those of the United States Institute of Peace and Ghost Island Media. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.